Blog Talk Radio. And I tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guest is Dr. Julie Stout. Julie Stout is a professor at the Turner, a professor at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. She leads a team of researchers employing techniques from neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience to characterize the effects of neurodegeneration on cognition. Her research group is known for innovations and assessments using computerized and sensor-based approaches. Professor Stout is a leading international expert in Huntington's disease. Her team has led the cognitive components of several large international studies, studies which have described the progression of symptoms in people with Huntington's disease gene as the progress from normal functioning to manifest Huntington's disease. Professor Stout led the development of the HDCAB, which is now the standardized, standardized cognitive assessment battery for clinical trials in Huntington's disease. Professor Stout also chairs the Scientific Oversight Committee of Enroll HD, the largest ever study of people with Huntington's, from Huntington's disease families which has nearly 20,000 participants globally. A key translation of Professor Stout's research is that the diagnosis of Huntington's disease is now being refined to take into account, for the first time, cognitive changes rather than only focusing exclusively on the movement part of the disease. Professor Stout is the director of Stout Neuropsych and Zinda Matrix, which are spin-out companies that provide an assessment platform and services for cognitive assessment and clinical trials to pharmaceutical sponsors. Her team collaborates with multiple industry partners, pushing innovations by integrating emerging technologies such as mobile devices and sensors into clinical trials with the aim of capturing individual differences in both disease phenotypes and responsivity to treatments. I am going to bring her in the show right now. I am very excited to interview her today. I am just going to let everyone know, just FYI, we are having some uh, wind storms here in California, and they are threatening to cut our power because of, of course, the fires we have here. So if I lose you guys, I'm so sorry. Hopefully we can make it through the show today. So I am going to bring Dr. Scout on with us uh, right now. Let me see. Hi, Julie. Are you there? I am. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for coming on the show. So we are live. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Um, If we can start by jumping in the show, and first of all, just tell us, why did you become interested in Huntington's disease? Well, it was a long time ago now, but um, I was a postdoc in San Diego um, in 
1993-1994, and as you would know, that was a very exciting time in Huntington's disease because mm -hmm. um, the gene was identified, and there was a lot of energy um, around how we were going to really make a difference in this disease. So I was in training at the time and working with you know patients with Alzheimer's disease and HIV-associated mm -hmm. dementia and so on, and then I got exposed to Huntington's disease, um, and I, I think I was immediately compelled by it, you know, really because of the family aspect of it, um, you know, meeting people who were, you know, going into such, you know, a, a challenging disease with so much knowledge from having witnessed other family members being affected. Um, and I suppose that really touched me. I mean, you know, it was really, and, and the, the disease um, is, you know, it, it has such an important kind of human um, element, you know, because of of the nature of the disease and the way it affects families, um, and it's also a puzzling um, and interesting disease. Um, and, and so, from another point of view, it was something good to work on. Um, yeah, so you know, I started training clinically in HD, and I started training research in HD, and I've never walked away from it since. Well, our community is thankful for people that actually come in, and it is true, I, I you know, I, I, all the researchers and doctors I talk to all over the nation um, they, and interview, they always kind of say the same thing. Once you get into the community and you meet our families and um, start to learn about our struggles and kind of become part of us, it's hard to ever leave. So we are thankful to have you for sure. Yep. Um, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, so I'm going to try not to completely um, – because this is a, these have very long words in them, so I'm going to try to not mess this up. But today we're going to talk about actually two different research studies. So the fir first is discrete changes in the frequency and functions of autobiograph autobiographical remin science, remini science in Huntington's disease. How much did I get that wrong? <laughs> I'll let you. Yeah, I'll tell you what they are. <laughs> yes. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, so <laughs> autobiographical reminiscence, okay? So I'll tell you what this study was about. Um, so autobiographical memory is, is an interesting form of memory. This is our memory for our own lives, the things that have happened to us, you know, things like, you know, finishing high school, graduating, getting married, having a baby, all of those kind of, you know, special moments, um, you know, along with just kind of our memory for what we did. You know, we did this for this many years and then we did something else. So so autobiographical memory is a really important kind of memory because it's, it's kind of memory that helps us with our own sort of self-image and self-identification. And it's also really important because it helps us relate to other people. So, you know, we share memories with other people that we've had experiences with. And so autobiographical memory has also an important social function because it connects us to other people. So we were interested in this kind of memory because well, we're neuropsychologists, so we're interested in all things about cognition. And usually cognition, um, use, you know, it has a big focus on, on understanding memory. We look at, you know, things like people's memory for word lists or pictures of objects or something like that. And there's a whole long history of this kind of research on memory in HD. But what hadn't been done um, and is to look at people's actual, their memory for their own lives. So we thought that this was really a missing piece um, for understanding the way memory was affected in Huntington's disease, and that's why we took up that kind of work. So in doing that work, there were two kinds of things that we had to do. One is we had to try and learn about 
how uh, whether people's autobiographical memory um, is affected by Huntington's disease. And then the other thing we wanted to know is, and do they use their memory for their own lives in the same way that um, healthy people do? So the reason we wanted to know that is because one of the things we worry about in Huntington's disease is that as the disease develops and progresses, there can be problems um, that arise like in social relationships um, and, they can, and people with HD can become a bit disconnected from their families, their loved ones, their communities and things like that. So we wanted mm -hmm. to understand whether you know, people's, uh, whether there was some trouble in people's ability to remember their past history and that meant that it was difficult for them to relate to other people and their families and so on who shared some of the same history. So autobiographical is the kind of memory and it was about memory for people's own experiences, very personal kind of memory. And reminiscence mm -hmm. um, is about what's the purpose of reminiscing because you know we all sit around you know and, and talk with each other about you know what grandma did and what mom did and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. we wanted to know whether you know people with hd were using that same kind of reminiscence um and whether it was kind of fulfilling the same purposes which are things like social connection you know sense of self and things like that so that's why we did the study and um it did turn up some kind of interesting things because we found that people with hd um remembered it, they, they, they do remember somewhat less detailed um, memories from their own past, but they still remember, you know, what the events were. They just might not remember as many of the um, associated details. But in terms of reminiscence, they're, um, they're, they're doing less of that kind of sitting around and reminiscing with other people to make a social connection. So they're reminiscing, um, you know, in, the, in their own heads just as often as everyone else. But they're not using that reminiscence to help them connect up with other people as much, which is, you know, which is an important thing to realize because actually, um, you know, you can use reminiscence as a kind of therapy, you know, like especially an interpersonal therapy. So you can, you know, bring two people together and, you know, like say if you're doing marriage counseling, you might have them do share reminiscences and that might improve their connection. And so, this is something that maybe people with HD are not doing as spontaneously as they could, and maybe it's um, an area that we could work toward, um, you know, especially in working with families, is to help to generate those shared reminiscences and perhaps realize that a person with HD is not going to be sort of generating that as much um, as, you know, as maybe other family members. That doesn't mean that they can't enjoy those reminiscences when they come up, but they're just not going to be the ones, you know, kind of starting that sort of discussion. As often. Sure. Yeah, and this is like so important for like family understanding, I would imagine, because I know with my husband, he, before he passed away, he would, he would, I would always talk about old memories of our kids and all that just to like try to bring him happiness. And he did, he smiled mm -hmm. when I would talk about the kids, mm -hmm. but he never really brought it up, right? That we'd be, we'd, we'd yeah, right. Family would come from out of town to see him and they would talk about, you know, to visit him when they knew he was coming towards the end stage of HD and he wouldn't be as, as engaged with them as they were with him. Yep. And I, I think it's really just an understanding for the families to know it's not because they don't want to. It just maybe, maybe it's just like anything else, right. To understand the symptoms, help us support our loved ones a little bit better. Well, I think that that's really important because, um, you know, it, it's, it's likely that, you know, as your husband, you know, got more and more ill, he would have been, less able to spontaneously 
you know, generate those conversations. But that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. he couldn't enjoy those conversations just as much, you know, if you generated those ideas. But this this is the kind of thing we really want to help families understand. And, and it's the same thing, like another thing is, you know, maybe if, if people develop HD, they, they just initiate conversation less. It doesn't mean they want to talk less. It's just that actually, you know, the kind of um, machinery in the brain that helps with initiating things is not working so well. So anything you can do to initiate helps them to engage and will improve the quality of their lives um, and the you know, quality of relationships. So, you know, I think it's, it's quite good, you know, with your husband, if you had, it sounds like you continued to try and bring him these experiences, which is, um, I think, a really important way to try and keep, uh, you know, the good quality of life that you can, that you can have as, as the disease progresses, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, mm-hmm. and, and helping families understand this, I think, is one of the key things um, that, you know, we mm-hmm. as the clinicians can do, but also it's the kind of information, it's, it's easy for us to share even on this radio show, um, so that's, that's a good, good purpose of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's the, another study is the real-life hypocampal dependent spatial memory impairments. In Huntington's disease, I probably said that wrong too. Um, so, what is that? Yeah, you did pretty good. <laughs> yep. Um, well, so that did research that had a kind of a different. Um, yeah, it was good. Um, that <laughs> research really has a kind of a different purpose. So, you know, my research group, we do a lot of work on developing um, cognitive measures and you know studying them for all sorts of different purposes. So, the purpose of that line of research is that we wanted to try and figure out. Um, how to do research in humans that was a, that better mapped onto some of the animal model research that's going on. So, one big problem um, in the field of just, you know trying to find treatments for any disease is there are all these animal models, and people you know administer drugs and they try and figure out what what might work in humans before they try it in humans. But one big problem is that there's a very poor translation from the animal to the human. So in other words, if a drug looks good in animals and you put it into humans, it may not yield the same good effects. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's going to yield bad effects. It just might be we see all this effectiveness in, the, um, say, a mouse model. We get very excited, and then we run a clinical trial. We don't see the same effect. So there are a lot of different reasons that that can happen. But believe it or not, getting back to the spatial memory impairment stuff, that, that's kind of one thing that we've been trying to do is try to find um, kinds of cognitive tests that you can run in humans that are similar to the kinds of cognitive tests that you can run in animals. <laughs> so, um, you know, humans and animals, you know, we have very similar cognitive systems. I mean, obviously animals don't use language in the same way we do, but um, they do navigate around the environment just like humans do. And um, one of the kind of popular things to do in animal model studies is to test spatial memory how they navigate around in their environment. And so what we did is we've just done a whole line of research to try and figure out um, whether we can run very similar spatial memory um, tests in humans so that if you tested an animal model with a spatial memory task and then you tested a a human in a clinical trial with a similar task, maybe we would be able to improve the translation, okay? So so that work, you know, it's kind of interesting because it it helps us just understand how the brain does spatial processing and how that might be affected in HD. But really the underlying purpose is to try and work toward better translation between animal models and humans. 
Yeah. I, I'm, I'm never going to forget years ago I was watching um, – uh, a, a, a scientist, a researcher, and they were they were doing mouse models, and they were you know the mouse were, was making their house, you know they were making their mm-hmm. their house and building their house, and then they they were navigating around, and and the HD mouse wasn't, right. and um and I found that so interesting because I of course don't I didn't translate this to my home, but I kind I mean actually maybe I kind of did because I was like. And my husband doesn't, you know, sometimes it t- was harder for him to process how to do a lot of stuff around the house. So it's really yeah. interesting looking at an animal model um, and kind of saying, huh, that's a lot like what we're living as well, um, which makes that yeah. I, was the, I was the mouse that did too much and like, <laughs> yeah. I was yelling at everyone else. I'm like, you were the mouse me. making the house while your husband was not. <laughs> Yeah, and he was yep. just kind of like, why don't you calm down? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that sounds like a typical scenario for me. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so what have you kind of learned from all this research? Well, I guess the way I, I sort of look at it is, you know, I'm I'm one little part of this kind of machine trying to find ways to um, improve the situation with HD. And the way my my little piece is really about trying to find ways to understand what the cognitive changes, um, what kind of impact cognitive changes have on people who have the disease, and how we can measure cognitive changes really efficiently, so that when we have clinical trials, we can test whether those whether drugs or other treatments can improve cognition. Um, so, mm-hmm. what I've learned, I suppose, is you know, I, I suppose I never really realized when I started doing this work how important getting um, precise measures of people's memory and thinking could be. But if you think about it, if you want to improve people's memory and thinking, you've got to have some way to measure it. And if it, it and if it improves, you have to be able to detect an improvement in that. So a lot of the work we do in my lab aims at trying to do that in one way or another. And I've learned a lot over the years about how to do it better and better. So that's, I suppose, what drives me the most. And I, you know, now I work a lot in clinical trials. And one of the things that's kind of interesting to know in clinical trials is that sometimes clinical trials are run without really the best, most sensitive measures of anything. They might not have the best measures of motor function or the best measures of um, cognition or even the best measures of, um, you know, from the brain. So. I and, you know, a host of other people in the world are trying to find ways to improve those kind of measures so that when there is a drug effect out there to be detected, we have the kind of, you know, we can generate the the, um, the evidence that that drug's working or not, you know. That's what we really need to be able to do. So I never thought I'd get into it, but I'm, I've gotten really into the science of measuring and understanding um, how to just get, um, you know, get measures to work, say, in clinical trials or in big multi-site trials. And so the way we do that, I, I sort of think of it like as a pipeline. Like in my lab, you know, we do all of these sorts of things, develop new measures, test measures, fix measures, make them shorter because a lot of times, you know, we have tests that are like 45 minutes long. We don't want a long test. We need short tests that are really working well and um, that you know, that are not too hard for people, not too easy. That, you know, there are all sorts of things that you need tests to be able to do. So we spend a lot of time tweaking, developing and tweaking tests 
and then putting them out there into places where these tests can be useful, like in clinical trials or, say, in Enroll mm -hmm. HD or Track HD or all of these kind of studies. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's the little piece that I try to contribute. But I, I think the other piece that I think is really important is we've, we've really, you know, we've, we're in a really interesting time right now um, with the development of treatments. And there's, you know, we've had optimism for 25 years, but the optimism hasn't translated really into effective treatments that can slow progression or delay onset. So, you know, we do, you know, of course we must be getting closer to it. Um, and right now is a time where I think we all feel really, really hopeful about that. But I think it's important to realize that, you know, we're still a long way off from being able to treat every person who has the HDG. And, and you know, even if these treatments that are in trials right now are turn out to be effective, which we really don't know if they will or not, but even if they do, um, you know, if you think about the problem of how do you, get those treatments out to every single person who needs those treatments across the world. We are so far from that goal. And so we've got a lot of work to do to try and, you know, just try and figure out how we're going to do that. Um, and, it, you know, it's going to vary from country to country and so on. Um, so, you know, I'm a psychologist and I think, you know, the role psychology has to play is that, you know, number one, we're pretty good at measuring things, and so this is, you know, something I've been working on a lot. But number two, we're really also concerned about trying to make sure that there are psychological treatments as well as these drug treatments that we're all really aiming for. Mm -hmm. So I think that there will be people in the HD world who won't be eligible for at least the kind of treatments that are being developed right now. They won't get to, to many people. Um, and so realistically, we need to be able to say, you know, these are the kind of exercise things you can do, other lifestyle changes, cognitive training, you know, whatever we, you know, whether it's, it's you know, um, dietary, I mean, whatever it is, we need to be able to, you know, give people solid data-based um, uh, advice about, you know, what they can do to manage their HD, um, you know, and, and not have that you know, genetic expansion, you know, have any greater impact on it, on their lives than, than is necessary, you know. So, yeah, so yeah. that's that's really what I'm, you know, I'm thinking a lot about that right now and trying to develop my, in a future research program um, to try and, you know, keep trying to meet these needs, you know, keep trying to measure things better to help us find treatments and keep trying to think about the psychology of, the, of this disease um, so that we can meet, mm -hmm. you know, the, the emotional and, and um, psychological needs more broadly because, I, like I said, I just think it's a long time still before, um, even if we find treatments soon, they're not going to get, you know, translating them in, you know, sufficiently to have a global impact is, is still a long way off. Right, right. And so when you talk about measurements, um, I remember I was talking to some people as sponsors of clinical trials over the years, and it's always like, why do you have to have Korea? You always have to get, and they're like, it's the easiest thing to measure, measure, measure. Like they always talk mm -hmm. about the movement, measurement, measurement. And to yeah. have something like the HD cab, to have something like these things that you're developing um, to help be able to measure cognitive um, cognition and the cognitive side of HD, right? Um, I don't know if the behaviors, mm -hmm. those are, Luckily, we have treatments for more of that stuff, but the cognitive, and we know we don't, right, um, have very effective That's treatments. Right. My husband was on so many, so many, like, they were, oh, let's try an Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's medication. Yeah, that didn't work, That's you know, right. obviously. Yep. Um, so yeah. to be able to measure and, that is so important. That. Yes, right. Yep. 
Yeah, it is. And, and I think the thing is, like, if you found a treatment for Huntington's disease and all it did was improve the chorea, which is, in fact, what we do have, right, um, with um, mm-hmm. uh, tetrabenazine and, um, you know, these kind of drugs, you know, actually that that doesn't really um, get at the heart of the disease that really, um, you know, really affects people's function. You know, it's, you know, it's important because there are, you know, movement is like this outward sign of the disease. And if you can, you know, make that more manageable and make people's motor function better, of course, that's very important. But if you don't touch the cognitive aspect of it, you really haven't, you know, you haven't touched really an essential piece. And we know from, you know, the work that's been done talking to patients about their disease that their cognition and their behavior changes really do give them more trouble. Mm-hmm. They cause more functional mm-hmm. impairment, more decline in their abilities than their movement problems. So we've really got to target those. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to have ways of measuring those in clinical trials. Um, but the field has, has, has made a tremendous um, amount of progress on, on this in the past 20 years. Like we now know, you know, it, like when I started working in the field, we didn't even know whether there was good evidence that the cognitive changes started prior to the disease diagnosis. But now we've got a whole, you know, the field has worked together very well, and we have a whole picture of how the disease develops from its earliest signs, you know, all the way through um, to the point of diagnosis and then after diagnosis through the stages. And this is, you know, without having that picture, we haven't really, you know, we weren't able to to do these kinds of clinical trials very effectively. Um, So we now know, you know, cognition is affected at least it's affected measurably, you know, on the group level. You can't say this on a person-by-person level. But you can measure cognitive changes 10 or more years before the disease gets diagnosed. So it's an early and that's sign. So interesting. And, you know, we, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, we believe that that's really an important piece of why people, you know, their work mm-hmm. function goes down and their function in the family, you know, begins to um, change and that sort of thing. So... Um, Absolutely. You know, it's important yeah. for us to know that so we can target those um, drug treatments to make sure that they don't miss out on that element of the, of the disease. I, I had a, a, a wife tell me one time in the very beginning of this, she said, I never, I never thought about um, lose, uh, leaving my husband or the disconnect from the family because of Korea. And I didn't really understand mm-hmm. what she said until I lived the whole life cycle of HD, right, from diagnosis to my husband's yep. uh, passing a couple months ago, is I finally got what she meant. I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, it wasn't the Korea, because my husband had horrible Korea, but it wasn't the Korea that 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 causes the arrest or causes the, the mm-hmm. divorce or causes the disconnect from the family. Right. So, yeah, those are challenges we need to, we need to focus on because – if we could keep a family unit together, let's keep a family unit together, especially in a genetic disease Absolutely. like HD, right? So exactly. um, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Well, any final thoughts? Thank you so much for coming on. What an interesting interview. I've really enjoyed this and, and hearing all, you know, I'm ex- I actually want to interview you again if you like about the, I, um, I really want to talk about this. Yeah, this HD cab, it, you know, we were involved in a, in a study, a pre-cell study, my husband and I, um, and they were using the HD cab, and I, I didn't really understand it until I, the clinical trial coordinator explained to me what it, what it was. And, and it was done by a neuropsychologist, mm-hmm. which I thought so interesting because, of course, I'm thinking psychologist. I'm thinking behaviors. I'm like, no, this is cognitive. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so it's 
they explained yeah, it to me and yeah. then I got what they were actually looking for in him. So um, yeah. a huge thank you, obviously, for anyone that has participated in clinical studies because this is the this is what they find. I mean, this is what what Doctor you know what Doctor Stout is talking about is because you guys have participated in studies and um, my family did. I know so many families across the globe do, and this is what the outcomes we get um, from being a part of this. So it's definitely important. Yeah, it's for families to participate. You know, we are so yeah, we are so grateful um, to participants and. We actually feel like we ask a lot of people. Um, you know, we ask them to give their time, and sometimes we ask them to give, you know, you know, various samples. Like right now, we're doing studies on the gut microbiome, so they're actually giving giving us poo. Mm-hmm. You know, we ask them to give us mm-hmm. all sorts of things, mm-hmm. hair sometimes, and blood, and you know, so it's it's no small, you know, it's no small thing um, what people are doing. Um, and I think you know, people mm-hmm. who are participating in some of these clinical trials right now, they're getting lumbar punctures and. There's going to be brain surgery mm-hmm. trials, and these are huge commitments on the part of um, the HD community. Um, and we are yeah. very grateful, but I, I think we do feel like we're all part of one big family, the researchers and the clinicians and, and the patients and the families. You know, we are all working toward the same goal, and we all can just do what we yeah. can do. Um, but anyway, we're very grateful. And, and thank you so much for yeah. the interview. I really enjoyed it. I'd be delighted to talk again. Yes, yes, absolutely. We definitely need more interviews on cognition and the cognitive um, symptoms in HD. We need more of that um, definitely going on. So thank you so much, Dr. Stout, for coming on with us today. The only announcements I think I have um, to go out is we did open our holiday program. Um, This is for families that need assistance during the holiday season. We opened the program for two days and we filled up. Um, So that program, we actually have gone after more sponsorships and more money, and I am proud to say that we actually um, got more money to support our community. So we are going to um, do something. Uh, we actually just launched the toy program today, and then we'll launch the JHD program next week, and then stay tuned because it looks like we're going to do another holiday program for our community. Uh, we are so thankful for all the families that have um, come out and, and, gave in, and have given to the relief fund to help families in need and all of our sponsors that have done that. It's going to make a huge impact. I think we're like tripling the amount that we've done in the past um, to help families in need and that are struggling. So I'm so thankful for everybody for that. If you guys want to learn more about that, you guys can always go to our website, www.helpforhd.org. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Everyone enjoy your family and have a safe holiday um, for those of you in the U.S. that celebrate that. Um, To everyone else, have a safe week and we will see you next week, same time, same date, same place. Thank you, Dr. Scott. You're very welcome. Thanks. Have a good Thanksgiving, you people in the, in the U.S. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.